Hey folks, this is Scott Weingart, and this is another MCRIT episode of Shadowboxing, where we take a concept from Gary Klein on the best way to learn complex tacit knowledge, which is to have a case presented to you and force you to make decisions before you actually hear from experts in the field as to what they would do, and then you could compare your decision-making to what they did, and you might be right and they might be wrong, but most of the time they're going to be right, and uh, your decision may be correct or not, and um, it is a fantastic way to learn, and this is a free resource we put out there for residents and fellows, but we find that there's a ton of attendings and other healthcare specialties listening as well, so uh, it's for the good of all fellow kind. Um, And I guess I should say happy Thanksgiving if you're in America, because today is Turkey Day in America. I would strongly urge you to use this day as what its name is for, which is think of all the good things in your life and have some gratitude for them. And then the day will be wonderful, not just because the resplendent sports, beer, and turkey, but also because you will increase your psych ecological resilience. All right, so today I'm joined by Ryan, uh, master of the shadows, editor of Shadowboxing, um, my ex-fellow Alexander Bracey, and Barrett, who is a fourth year going into ED critical care, and we discuss a pulmonology case. And because it is outside of my typical Ballywick, at the end, stay tuned after we finish the Shadowboxing portion, don't disappear, uh, because I got the brilliant pulmonary pulmonary critical care doctor, Mae West, who has been on the show before, a friend of MCRIT, um, to give some commentary on the case as well. So let's jump right in, and I think you'll like it. All right, let's do introductions for everyone. So why don't you, as our veteran, why don't you start it off, Ryan? Hello, Ryan Barnacle here. I'm the director of emergency critical care. Alex? Hi, I'm Alex Bracey. I'm a resuscitation and emergency critical care fellowship director up here at Albany Medical Center in Albany, New York. Sweet, and Barrett. I'm a PGY4 emergency medicine resident applying to critical care. Excellent. All right. And you guys have a case for Alex and I, correct? Yep. All right. Let's do it. So I'd like to frame the case a little bit at the beginning for the audience because okay. uh, I think that'll help some learning. So um, this case is definitely not about finding the diagnosis or figuring out the disposition. Uh, those were the pretty straightforward aspects of care. But due to boarding and inpatient capacity, we definitely found ourselves making second, third order decision making that may be outside the typical decisions we make in the emergency department, especially compared to five or 10 years ago when these were definitely inpatient decisions. Has we got to have this question in the back of our minds, has emergency medicine fundamentally changed forever where this is now on us? And I know both of you are passionate about this. Before we dive into the details, Alex especially, do you want to give your point of view on this? I, I just want to make sure I understand. You're saying it, w- with with regards to critical care in general and the delivery of critical care, is it on the emergency? Is it incumbent upon emergency physicians uh, to be at least facile, if not masters, of caring for the ongoing care of, of patients in the emergency department that are critically ill? Make sure your sh- give your spiel real quick. Sure. Yeah. Obviously, my take on this is, is as as you said, passionate, and I definitely think that it is incumbent upon the upon the emergency physician to be able to at least care for the early minutes to hours of a patient who's critically ill. Uh, I obviously that's the part parcel with our mutual training and and what we're you know what I have to what I what I am training for or what I'm training residents I'm sorry postgraduate emergency uh, uh, medicine residents 
uh, up here in the at Albany for the resuscitation program. And uh, the, the point, of course, is that these patients don't leave. They don't go anywhere uh, often. Depending upon your hospital system, these patients might be there for 24 hours. And if, if the if the ICU team doesn't come downstairs to care for them, then they're just languishing. There are, are many hospital systems where that's the case. And then there's plenty of hospital systems uh, that are very efficient, but you don't know which one you're going to be uh, working in. And so I think it's, it is incumbent upon emergency graduates, emergency medicine graduates to be able to care for emergency physician. I'm sorry, to be able to care for critically ill patients for beyond just step one, for a, a, for up to and including, I think, at least the first six hours until somebody else can help you out, until the patient can go to an ICU or be transported. But realistically, I think even up to the first 24 hours, we've got to know how to do it. Yeah. And I think for the audience, this this case highlights what some of those steps are beyond uh, the initial resuscitation. So Barrett, do you want to start things off? Absolutely. So our patient was a male in his 30s or 40s without any real past medical history. And the first part of the case, actually, neither Ryan nor I were on shift for. But a review of the chart shows that this patient presented in sinus tack with a rate in the 130s, uh, temperature of 98, satting 98% on room air. The triage nurse recorded that the patient reported fever, cough, and vomiting since Friday, denies being tested for COVID, denies chest and abdominal pain, and denies shortness of breath. They were assigned an ESI-2 and were put in a medium acuity area of the hospital. When they got to the room, they were described as having unlabored and even respirations in no distress, moving all extremities and denying chest pain. And it was 40 minutes later, they were lined, labbed, and blood cultures were obtained as part of that initial lab work. About half an hour after that, a blood gas resulted and it shows a pH of 7.43, CO2 of 43. And a chest x-ray was also obtained at that time. Show you the chest x-ray. Can you guys see that? Yeah. Subtle. So that's what I mean when the diagnosis is pretty straightforward. So what are you guys seeing for the audience? Alex? Yeah, so over here, I have, we have a PA chest x-ray um, that shows a left-sided, uh, almost not quite white up, but near white up. It looks like there's an air fluid level, which makes you think that there's a fusion. And the, uh, on the, if I didn't mention this already on the left and the right side looks pretty normal. There's actually even some tracheal deviation on this x-ray, I believe. Excellent. Okay. So let's pause here. So I think, what do you want to call this guys? I, I think uh, call this x-ray and call this diagnosis. I, I, this to me looks like a large pleural effusion versus a, versus a pneumonia. Yeah. Or, or a combination thereof. Yeah. Or, I, I saw some lung markings within it. So. I, I lean towards consolidation, at least being part of it, as opposed to purely fluid. But you know my skills at radiology. Yeah, so I think we have fever, cough, chest x-ray. We've got a real pneumonia here. This is legit. And his vital signs would suggest that he's approaching sepsis. So our first question for you guys is, how do we define severe community-acquired pneumonia? And why is this important? All right, how do you define, how do you risk stratify for community-acquired pneumonia being severe? And if you have made the decision that they are severe cap, do you give steroids at this stage of the game or not? 
Uh, we will discuss this now, and then we will discuss this as well later on in the podcast. But you make the decision now. Are you calling it severe cap, and are you giving steroids? Yes or no? Severe community-acquired pneumonia. There, there's a bunch of scores for this, obviously. There's a pneumonia severity index. Uh, there's CURB-65, which I don't know if anybody actually uses. And I'm sure there are quite a few others that I'm forgetting, but actually the, the, the looks like shit score a little bit more than I like the, than I like any of these scoring systems, because I think that, that, that really frames, uh, how you should manage the patient rather than looking to go to a calculator for how to manage a patient. Uh, and that above all else is, is something that every emergency physician needs to be able to do. I think the one thing that might help with the risk stratification or, or there are actually several things. One would be disposition. You could, some would try and make the argument that this patient could go to the floor and, and perhaps if the if they're scoring highly on one, one system or the other, they deserve ICU level of care off the cuff because they might decompensate. The other thing is more recently, the, the addition of hydrocortisone as a recommendation for severe community-acquired pneumonia or as an adjunctive therapy in a community-acquired pneumonia makes, makes recognizing severe illness, I think, important. What do you think, Scott? Yeah, I, I don't know at this stage of the game. There's two questions. Are we determining severity for disposition, which you just addressed, Alice? Are we determining severity for degree of antibiotic coverage? And I think in either case, you do have gestalt adding into scores. And honestly, I don't care which one you use. I think for me, at least, this patient's not going home. I'm not determining whether he's going to ICU or not. It's going to be what develops. We've only had a, a snapshot right now. And I'm going to cover this patient broadly. But I don't know. I have a lot of problems with what's going on with this description right now. Because you said he was afebrile, right? We had fever at home. He's afebrile here. Okay. But this is an enormous pneumonia. This is, this is an entire lung filled with infectious agent. It does, that doesn't make sense to me uh, a lot. And his respiratory status with the complete loss of lung doesn't make a lot of sense to me. He's still satting perfectly with what should be a lung that disappeared. And why would he have tracheal deviation from consolidation? That doesn't make sense to me either. So there's a lot not adding up right now. So I don't even, I'm in the still figuring out what the hell's going on phase. I'd certainly cover this patient with broad antibiotics at this stage, but I don't, I'm not set on, oh yeah, it's severe community acquired pneumonia. Let's stick with that. And what was his respiratory rate? His initial respiratory rate was not recorded in triage. Um, they went on to record one. It looks like they re recorded a respiratory rate of 16 about two hours into the case. I, I don't know. This is just not adding up for me. So I'm still right on the fence of making any decisions on this patient, except that I want additional imaging of the patient's lungs. Okay. So before we, yeah. Okay. So that's one of our questions, but, but you said broadly cover antibiotics. So I think, especially for the trainees listening, what coverage are we giving that's different than, say, a typical community-acquired pneumonia? I would, at this point, cover uh, resistant staph on this patient, you know, staph aureus, because I just don't like the looks of this pneumonia. And I, I just give broad-spectrum coverage with a fourth-generation cephalosporin, for instance. So cefepime, vank, and then does this look like Legionella you know, the only atypical I really worry about? Not so much. I, I could wait on adding in something like Azithromax. So I don't know. At, at the beginning, I'd probably just give this patient cefepime vank. Scott, can I, let, let me ask you a question here because that, that uh, my initial interpretation of that chest x-ray, I'm, I'm obviously super willing to be wrong, is, is that there is some component of fluid there, which raises the specter of empyema. Would you add, what's it called, anaerobic coverage? 
if you were really going that direction, you could switch to meripenem instead of your cefepime, and I think that would be a, a fine move. But my immediate plan on this patient is to... All right, are you adding anaerobic coverage on this patient? Just to pop in here, you know, and maybe alter your decision-making, um, the anaerobes from aspiration generally are anaerobes that are easily covered by the normal antibiotics we give. Things like ceftriaxin will cover the anaerobes from oral flora. Now, GI anaerobes are, are an entirely different set of bugs, and that's typically when you want specific anaerobic coverage. But if you just had a patient with aspiration pneumonitis that then progressed to aspiration pneumonia, in general, the regular antibiotics actually do cover that oral flora, uh, unless it's a patient who, you know, is... Uh, having GI contents in their oral cavity, you know, and like an alcoholic passed out with vomit in their mouth for prolonged periods of time. Now, that being said, I think Alex's point is well taken, and I, it probably would be uh, just clever just to cover that with something like a mirapenem, which I'll discuss in a moment. But um, I, I think if you just gave these aspiration pneumonia, and, you know, this is probably uh, paranemonic effusion, uh, or it could be an empyema, I, I think you could add that coverage on afterwards depending on your antibacterial um, spectrum of things that grow. Though, I, I, you know, Alex's move is probably smarter and just cover the uh, GI anaerobes right up front because if you're going to give uh, something like a cefepime, giving a meropenem or a zosin, it, it's, it's not that big a jump. All right, enough commentary. Let's get back into it. Get a CT. He's in a stable state right now, and I want to find out what's going on. All right, and I again don't mean to drag this out, but I think we're this is weird. This is not adding up. Scott, you mentioned better imaging. You want to get a CT in general. What's your threshold for wanting something beyond an X-ray for when you're we're worried about a pneumonia? There's something in my mind that's still like, what is going on here? And look, before we're going to send the patient to CT, we're certainly going to ultrasound their lungs to, you know, and that might send us in some different directions in terms of management. But if you ask me what I'd be ordering right now, it's broad spectrum antibiotics and a CT with contrast. And then in the midst of that, I'm going to grab an ultrasound to the bedside and then I can easily cancel that CT order if things are revealed on the magic of sound shooting through that patient's chest. Okay. I just want to piggyback off that thought if it's okay. Anybody who's got abnormal vital signs and comes in with the complaint of chest pain or shortness of breath deserves a bedside ultrasound of heart and lungs just every time. And I feel like most of the time, the, the limiting factor is just our desire to wheel the machine over. And that, in particular, when you're talking to trainees, and this is just so important to highlight because it will just it may send you in any different direction at all. And yeah, and I think the point that I make to residents just in general, when someone's critically ill or abnormal vital signs, it's not the time to pull punches with diagnostics, right? Don't anchor on a subtle finding on x-ray and call it pneumonia if that's not answering your question. You know, get more advanced imaging. In this case, I think we have a very abnormal x-ray that's not completely defined. And so certainly CT is an easy decision. And then, you know, I, I, you guys don't need to answer this on the spot, but I think something's not adding up with a reportedly healthy 30 to 40 year old male suddenly with a chest x-ray like this. And so are we worried about something more nefarious or compromising for this patient? And so what else are we going to want to add to our initial workup? Maybe not to change our decision making, but to find some clues to the mystery later. That's something to keep in the back of your mind. Is there any reason for respiratory isolation at this point on this patient? Exactly. So the Barrett, why don't you 
tell us what the initial team ordered next and uh, then what they changed their mind about. So now we're about an hour and a half into the patient's presentation. To the, the chest x-ray was read very quickly. The impression said left lung consolidation with lung abscess or CT with IV contrast is recommended for further characterization. The team ordered ceftriaxone and about 10 minutes later, a repeat set of vitals came back with a temperature of 102.7, a heart rate of 148, a respiratory rate of 16, and an SpO2 of 92% on room air. But at that time, the ceftriaxone was canceled and vancomycin and piptazo was ordered, along with a CTPE, CT chest with a pulmonary embolus contrast, and two liters of lactated Ringers was also ordered. Another pause here in terms of the antibiotics is I think for normal community-acquired pneumonia, we don't typically cover for MRSA. Scott, you said you would. Is that more of a gestalt or what's the reasoning behind that? And then what is your optimal uh, antibiotic to cover for MRSA? Okay, are you covering this patient for MRSA? Who do you cover in general for MRSA? And if you do cover for MRSA in this patient, what antibiotic do you use? Yeah, so Staph aureus has a tendency to create these horrible multi-lobar pneumonia. So that pushes me a little bit in that direction. And then uh, for me, at least, if you're critically ill, then I am generally going to err on the side of initial resistant MRSA coverage, resistant Staph aureus coverage, rather. And because one or two doses is fine, and then the ICU, depending on what they discover, could easily pull back. I, all of these antibiotic guidelines are really predicate on a con- continued course of the choice. Don't give cefepime for seven days when ceftriaxone would have been fine. But we have to play a different game when you have a critically ill patient in the emergency department. You could be very broad for the first or second doses and then pull back to a very antibiotic preserving tight regimen as you actually get more information. And I think it's this dichotomous path of, no, you either have to go focused or broad that really misses the game in resuscitation. In resuscitation, you could start off super broad and then narrow your spectrum as you know the day progresses. We didn't, we agree. This was just a ill patient. We agreed to cover for MRSA. But when we were reviewing the case, we were using the internet book of critical care. Shout out to Josh Farkas. And his review of CAP mentioned something called the SHORE score. And if they're positive on the SHORE score, they probably deserve MRSA coverage. And this patient actually did not score in terms of risk factors for this, which was interesting. So I had never heard of this. Are you guys familiar with it? Yeah, I mean, that it's on my site, I am. Not super validated. I think it's a perfectly appropriate choice for your run-of-the-mill, I'm going to admit this patient to a hospital, community-acquired pneumonia. I think that's it's actually a fine way to add to your own clinical leanings. I, I think when you have an anomaly, that's when you stop playing the, let me give, evidence-based medicine is wonderful. Oh, let's save the CT. But when you have a situation that's making you say, I don't quite understand what's going on, I don't think that's the time to use EBM to take away an easy win right? I taught you guys during fellowship. It's like, don't be too smart for your own good. It's, oh, I'm, I'm going to not pan scan the chest on this patient. I'm going to do just the head and the abdomen. Okay, that's fine for a patient who had a ground level fall and you like have a very clean story in your life. But when you had like a rollover MVC, 
and the patient like comes in super sick, it's fuck it. Like where did that intelligence really get me when you actually miss the aortic injury on that patient? So I, I, for me, this patient is certainly one of those categories. It's like something very weird and bad is happening. Let's just look good. No one's going to fault us for, oh, you shouldn't have given Vanco on this patient. You should have saved that Vanco. But if you miss MRSA on this patient, you're going to look like an idiot. And this is a high-risk person, right, being read as empyema in general for MRSA uh, in addition to the multi-lobar uh, concerns. So, yeah, I, I, I totally back up Scott here for what it's worth is that the MRSA coverage on the critically patient in general certainly I think is worth is just worthwhile. Uh, but in somebody who's uh, not high-risk radiological features of it, I think even more. Okay. And to just hammer home the antibiotic question one more time, I think, Scott, you did a good job at hammering home to us that usually MRSA coverage should be the second antibiotic that goes in because there's evidence to support giving the beta-lactam first. Does that hold true for this patient still? Oh, yeah, yeah. Look, first of all, you're putting it in a phrase of you have to decide which one goes first. Don't do that. That's not the right decision. The right decision is simultaneous antibiotic administration for sick patients. And you'll have pushback from your uh, nursing colleagues uh, until you actually establish this as the way it should be played because they're like, well, if there's a reaction, we're not going to know which one. You got to get rid of that. That's not, That was one of the things we did in our sepsis collaborative in New York is we just brought all the stakeholders to the table and said, yeah, I get it in a not sick patient. It's nice to know if there was a reaction, which antibiotic it was. It's not relevant in a sick patient. So you just give them both. You start the vanco infusion as you're giving the cefepime uh, or miripenem in this case, and you just get them done. Now, if you were forced, oh, there's only one IV and there's no one in the universe who could get two, yes, put the miripenem in and then the vanco, but that shouldn't be in a, a real situation in a patient like this. You should have multiple ports of IV access. Awesome. All right, Barrett. There's one other thing to discuss here, really quickly, if you're, if I may, yep. is the choice between is do you, Scott and the rest. Do you think that there's, do you take issue with the Vank uh, Piptazo combo? I know that where I trained, it was standard, and where I've come to, that is totally so far gauche it would probably be like a reported kind of a thing. Josh on the site has done an amazing job of attempting to dispel this myth. It certainly causes a creatinine elevation, but not through kidney damage. It causes a creatinine elevation just through interaction with the medications. And there's really, I think, no good signal in the literature saying there's any danger whatsoever of vancosocin in combination. In fact, I just put a study in this month's MCRIT rack review showing that in an RCT comparing cefepime and zosin with most of the patients getting uh, vancomycin as well, uh, there was no change in kidney damage. So I, I really think we need to put this behind us. I feel that vanco and zosin are a safe combination to, uh, from the perspective of kidney damage. Let's get rid of but you have to really have that conversation in a high level with everyone involved to, to show the evidence and prove that. So yeah, it's unfortunate. We'll link to that in the show notes of the dispelling of that myth. But yeah, it's tough to overcome in some places. All right, Barry, why don't we rapidly review the next hour or so? Sounds good. So now we're an hour and 45 minutes into the case. The patient is now on the monitor, heart rates in the 150s. Two of the, it was an attending and a resident went to the bedside. An EKG was performed. The patient was incontinent of urine and stool this time. They were cleaned. And they got two points of IV access. They were remaining on the two liters oxygen by nasal cannula, satting 
And we have that EKG right here. I'll just interpret it for you guys. It's sinus tack to 154 with a right bundle and a left anterior fasicular block. No obvious ischemic changes, no strain pattern. So some labs start rolling back. The sodium is 131. The heart rate is still in the 150s. Patient is still febrile. It's almost 103. The white count is 39,000 with 4% bands. Hemoglobin is 11.6. And now the chart reflects that the patient had some accessory muscle usage and is pumped up to three liters oxygen. The peptazo is now hanging along with one gram of IV Tylenol. And I would and say he had a normal lactate as well initially. All right, at this point, does the altered mental status, the incontinence, point you to actually considering intubation? Are you going to try other maneuvers first? Or are you going to wait and watch? What is your plan in your head right now? And then we'll see what our discussants say. So that I'm glad you brought this up because I think that this is something that maybe is a, 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 something I think about a lot. Something that has recently maybe changed in my practice is that I think that I'm curious, would you ever consider BiPAP? Assuming this person has a reasonable uh, mental status, would you ever consider the use of CPAP or BiPAP in this patient? Or if you're using non-invasive, is it always high clonasal uh, oxygenation? If all I wanted to do is temporize, then either non-invasive standard mask or high flow would be okay. I just don't like where this intended course is going. And it's just not going to get me what I want. If we wanted to go over there with him and just get the CT and okay, if it gets worse, we're here, we'll take care of it. Yeah, I think you could get that done. My guess is his course is going to get much worse. I'm already not liking where it is. You certainly could temporize for as long as you want. And I'd have no problem if I came down and saw this patient on high flow or non-invasive. But yeah, if I'm not going to intubate this patient, I'd put him on high flow right now. Yeah, that's my sense too. And I totally agree. It sounds like the incontinence is, I would say, a, a bad harbinger seemingly, or a harbinger of badness. But high flow in particular for, for pneumonia is sort of where I stop in terms of non-invasive these days based on the Florali trial. It seemed that it did worse Patient, these patients did worse, specifically pneumonia patients did worse after acute hypoxemic respiratory failure with CPAP and BiPAP. So I, if they're not flying on high flow and I'm using it to, to see if they're going to fly at all, then I stop there and I intubate them. And it sure sounds like this person is headed in that direction. So I totally agree. Well, I'll, I'll say this. Florari was an inpatient trial. And its reason, I think, if you read into why it happened is because you could temporize a lot longer on CPAP, BiPAP than you can. And so when they fail, they go down in flames. I wouldn't necessarily extrapolate that to the ED critical care setting where you're just watching that. I think you'll know. But if they require true non-invasive, I think that's an absolute indication for intubation. But what I don't want people to take home is while I'm getting them ready to be intubated, I can't put them on non-invasive. Right. So it's the difference of yeah. I'm going to leave them on this for their hospital stay and they'll get better versus I'm going to leave them on this for 20 minutes to temporize them until I could get them intubated. I think you're certainly in that latter case. OK, now, Ryan did sent the chat message the wrong way and says we're walking into a trap. And I'm not sure <laughs> because I said I might need this patient. So I'm not sure which trap I could be walking into. But let's hear how it goes. Well, you're prejudging all of our decisions, I feel like so. Let me pause here because I think we just made a ton of good points and I would emphasize that you need to know your logistics and the capacity of your place and your nurses and your team, right? Before making your decisions, we're privileged here. And so for the audience 
just so so they can understand. And this patient, obviously, we're all in agreement, very critically ill at this point, getting worse. So we are lucky where we train and we can bump them to our critical care unit. And so just so the audience understands, this is a 12-bed unit. There's two-to-one nurses. They can even flex to three-to-one and 18 patients can fit there. We have in-room x-ray. We have 24-7 coverage by a pair of emergency medicine residents, one medical and one trauma. There's over 14 hours a day of dedicated critical care coverage by an attending. Patients can be directly triaged there from walk-in or ambulance from by the nursing team or bumped up like this patient is going to be for increased needs. All our medical and trauma codes go there. And we do have a rapid assessment protocol where if someone doesn't need to be there after initial triage, they can bump out. And we can also stabilize or provide immediate interventions that allow the patient to then bump out. This patient kind of fell into the category of too much is going on. Let's get them over to critical care. And I think with the nursing ratio and physician ratio, we can see how things play out a little bit more. So Barrett, are you on shift now? Is that where we are? So my shift started about 40 minutes before this. Um, I was working in the critical care area. It was a pretty busy shift. And the the sign out for the uh, medium acuity pods had just happened. And I think it was at that time that they were probably discussing this patient and taking another look at his care. So what was your first impression when he came over? Yeah, so they uh, bumped him out into our critical care area, and basically I repeated another history on him. So at that point, he was endorsing fever, cough for four days. He said that he had no shortness of breath until last night, and then last night he started having chest pain, vomiting, and worsening shortness of breath. So it sounds like he had a little, like, few days of symptoms, and then this got really acutely worse. On exam, he was tachypnic to the mid-30s. He had increased work of breathing with accessory muscle usage. And when he coughed, it released this putrid smell into the air. And so at that point, we added some additional workup. Yeah, you um, tell us, because this, I think, won't change yeah. what we do, but it's important, right? Yeah. So we did a mercenaires, a sputum culture, we added Legionella and HIV. We did a repeat lactate and a repeat Delta troponin. And while that was going on, I grabbed the ultrasound. And I will also point out that I think Barrett may, at this point, this patient needs a higher level of care. So we immediately, or you immediately got the ICU triage involved. Yeah, we called the ICU and we let them know that I think this is the only way that I saw this patient had it's. And so I arrived shortly after, and I see this patient and hear his trajectory, and I go see him, and he just, I can't emphasize enough how ill he really looked, especially when he was coughing, he would have frequent desaturations. And so you guys went into this, I'm going to just rehash it a little bit. One of the cardinal black and white rules, Scott, that you instilled in us as residents, especially during that first wave of COVID, was that if a patient is requiring a non-rebreather now just to maintain saturations, is that ever an acceptable end game? And I know your answer is no. 
but like, why is that? And then you guys, I want you to, again, just pick what your next step is from a respiratory standpoint. Okay. Do you routinely keep your patients on non-rebreather as a solution to their problems in the ED? I'm not talking about a pre-oxygenation technique. I'm talking about you're maintaining a patient on a non-rebreather mask. All right. So if you require more than 40 to 50% FiO2, then the reason you have respiratory decompensation is shunt. And it could be true anatomical shunt. It could be physiologic shunt, but it's shunt. And shunt doesn't get any better with higher FiO2s than that. It gets worse. Now, if you're in an emergent process, you're, you're at the tail end of your ICU stay, and you could temporize at 60% because they're getting better and better, great, who cares? But in the ED critical care realm, we're always at the it's getting worse stage of the patient's illness. So if they require more than 50% and have severe physiologic shunt at that point, it's only going to get worse. So yes, you might bump the sat a little bit by going up to 60, 70, 80% on a non-rebreather, but you're just masking the patient's continued decline. So uh, for me, once you hit 40, 50% FiO2, you just switch to some form of increased mean airway pressure uh, respiratory modality, and that could be high flow, it could be non-invasive, or it could be an intubation, but you should not just go up on your FiO2, which is what the non-rebreather provides. I, I think based upon the person being awake and desatting only when they are coughing, by your description, please tell me if I'm wrong here, I don't think it would be unreasonable to put them on high flow. What I do think would be unreasonable would be to put them on CPAP and say, go to the ICU, then that's what we've done. And I and so just to come back to that point, I totally agree with you, Scott, that if you're using it as a pre-oxygenation modality where you have increased mean airway pressure, you have increased FiO2, CPAP or BiPAP for that matter are, are perfectly valid devices, but just want to double down on that. It's really not a long-term solution to the problem of pneumonia. Hypox, acute hypoxemic respiratory failure secondary to pneumonia. The The most concerning thing for me was just his work of breathing. He was sweating. He, he was working very hard. And so he was now at six liters on the nasal cannula. And so I was preparing to intubate this patient if needed. But like Alex said, I want to get him more comfortable. So I did start high flow. I thought it was the right choice for him. But my titration of high flow, I'm, I don't know what, I, I rely heavily on respiratory therapy for that. Do you guys have a rule of thumb on, on how to initial settings on the high flow and how to titrate it? You want to start, Alex? Sure. It's a rule of thumb, I have rule, there are limits, right? You can't go above 100% FiO2, and I think it's pretty easy to get to that point. And you can't, at least at my place, you can't go above 60 liters per minute in terms of flow rate. And so uh, I, I usually try and work them up in tandem, much like I would do with the, if a person was intubated using the ARDSnet peeps, peeps FI2 scale. And if it, if their flow rate might help with their work of breathing in particular. So if that's the issue, I might first work on uh, flow rate. And if oxygenation is the issue, I might first work on FIO2, but I don't suppose I have any hard and fast rules. What do you do, Scott? Yeah, I'll usually start them at 40 liters and 50%. And then just as you say, take a look at what's going on with them and adjust accordingly. The, the increased flow, aside from wasting a little bit of oxygen, it doesn't really have like huge perturbations like putting the peep up would. You really could go high too on a patient. You're like, oh, he's sick. Let's go to 60 and 100 and then work your way down. That would be absolutely fine as well. I, I the, the reason I think it's so you know, not critical what these settings are is the same reason I'm just not the hugest fan of the magic of high flow is it just doesn't do that much 
in the mean airway pressure world. It has an amazing amount of capability of washing out the CO2 and therefore making, if the patient's work of breathing is dependent on a ventilatory thing, they can't manage their own CO2, then it's great for that. And it makes them feel better, which I think has a huge psychological effect, which I think is the lion's share of why these patients look so much better when they're on it. It just feels right. But I'm just unimpressed with its capability of generating CPAP. And and I've never even understood the uh, physicality of it with a patient with an open mouth, how any you know, pseudo CPAP is supposedly even being generated. So I don't know. I think it's purely a oxygenation slash ventilation modality and not a recruitment maneuver. Okay. All right. In the interest of time, I'm going to show you guys the CT and then Barrett, why don't you ask? So he's the... unintubated on the way to the CT scan. He's on Correct. Okay. I think actually he, we put him on high flow. I think he went to CT first before coming over to critical. And so now we have the result. And, and this is CT pulmonary angiography, right? This is not a CT like lung parenchymo to standard contrast timing. You know that you're not going to have any loss of parenchymal discernment on a yeah. CTP. So that there's no, that right? no downside to that. Yeah, it's just going to be an extra contrast load, but you'll see the lungs with the same degree of alacrity, I believe. Got it. Okay. Just on, the, yeah, on that note, a very wise attending once told me if you're going to get a CT chest with contrast, just always make it a PE study. Is that hold true, basically? It, it's, it's a good rule of thumb rather than an absolute. And I might have been the person that has said that. It's my, I will change that statement to make it universal, which is if you have any possibility it could be a PE, then just do the CTPE because you won't lose anything on that. But if you have a patient who, like this patient, I don't think this is caused by PE is what I would say. So if you had just ordered a CT with contrast, I think that would have been okay too. Yeah, I, I don't know why I thought you had lost, and specifically if you were looking for abscess, I thought that there was a difference in the timing, but I get you're saying that's not I the case. I really don't think so. They do a okay. non-con and then a con, so I, I can't sure, imagine okay. that's the case. All right. Can you guys see this video? Yes. I get, All right. I'm well, going to play the, it through. The picture. We, it hasn't started yet on our end. Here we go. All right. Doesn't look that good. All right. Barrett, why don't you tell us what that showed, and we'll keep going. Yeah. Ryan, I got to say, I'm very impressed you made a video work on Zoom. The CTPE result, uh, so it was read as no PE, extensive findings of necrotizing infection throughout the left lung, contained extraparenchymal air fluid level, appears to represent direct communication with the left upper lobe abscess. And there was no significant empyema. At that point, we did an ultrasound or the, it was a few minutes before that, actually, I think that we did our ultrasound and it showed some subtle RV strain, otherwise good cardiac function, no pericardial effusion. We did look so at did the- did you guys have a lung ultrasound before CT scan? No. Okay. Because it, it came over yeah. to you from CT. Exactly. Yep. And we performed the ultrasound right after that, which pretty much confirmed what the CT showed. So now that we have a necrotizing infection, do you guys want to change your antibiotic treatment? Specifically, are we treating this as ARDS and how does that influence fluid choice? And then Scott, you want to intubate this patient. Bracey, does your decision to use high flow change at this point? And then one of the real cruxes of this case is, are we giving steroids? I'll, I'll take a crack in this first thing, I suppose. As far, uh, the question of, do I want to intubate this person based upon radiological findings? I'm not sure. I, I think the, the one 
the biggest uh, question that I would have, and I actually don't know the answer, Scott, you can help me out with this, is will they block this person? I, they, they probably will. And therefore, if that is an inevitable, I would probably intimate this person. Uh, so with that in mind, yes, I would probably, if there was a very high chance, and I, I would honestly probably just, if I didn't know the answer to this, and I clearly don't uh, off the cuff, I would just ask Palm or uh, the Mickey who's going to be taking this patient if they would, and uh, then I would intubate the, per the person at this time. Because you have a lot of physiologic reserve seemingly at this point, and so it sounds like it'll be a safe intubation. Yeah. I, I don't know if they're going to be bronching this patient. I just, I really fear this guy is young. That's why he's still what he is right now. I just have this anticipation of this patient crapping out badly. Um, and I, I don't know. That's where my spidey sense keeps telling me. It's like, right, yeah, we could temporize. We can get him to the ICU. And it's just like, what time of night is this, Barrett? So this is probably about nine, nine o'clock at night. Uh -huh. Yeah, I don't know. This, uh, so many stories of disaster have been written exactly this way for me. But we'll see how it goes. I certainly want to get Palm involved. And as to adding stuff on, I think this is also a case where ID should know about this patient. Now, they, if they don't weigh in that night, that's fine, but they need to be on board on this case as well. So yeah, I'd have a conversation with my colleagues in Palm Crit and ID, and then we could come together as a consensus because yeah, I think you have some time here to make some decisions. So yeah, if we're intubating the patient, how are, what, what are we, how are we managing the vent? If we intubate? Yeah, his left lung is essentially gone. So how do we adjust for that, I suppose, is my question. Yeah, you, you can't go crazy with your peep um, because it's just going to go to the good lung. You have to lie him right side down um, to try to preserve that good lung and temporize the pressure all going there. It's a real pain in the ass to deal with these unilateral situations. But right now, at least, he's not requiring enormous amounts of recruitment force. It's good. Maybe if we could get some progress on source control, we could actually markedly improve his respiratory status. Do we, sorry, you said lung down, if that's the good lung? Good lung down. Okay. And do we have to adjust our tidal volumes if we're only working with one lung? Generally, the low tidal volume already is an adjustment. Your ARDSnet settings are predicate on the idea that a normal healthy lung would ta be taking something like 10 or 12 cc's per kg. And now all of a sudden, you have reduced in both lungs down to something that's markedly less. So in this case, we have a perfectly good lung and we have some small amount of lung left on the left. So I'd say if you went with that six mLs per kg, still well within that ARDSnet standard, you'd be in good shape on that. Would you start at eight? I feel like I, my, my impression would be to start at eight and see what happens with the vent. I think you can, but I don't think you're going to get the feedback you're looking for, right? Like you don't know that you're overfilling the good lung. What are you going to see? I don't think your plats are going to be enormous at this point to be able to say. Let's say you put them on eight and you have a plat of, of 24. What are you going to do with that number? Yeah, probably nothing. Okay. Because I don't see the advantage necessarily like of putting them on a higher tidal volume in this case. Because all I care about is can I reasonably manage the CO2? And I have no concordant acid vapes problems that would make me really, oh, I can't let them get too hypercapping. So what do I care? if I have to go up on my respiratory rate a little bit to maintain something according of slight hypercapnia. So I think erring on the side of this patient at a slightly lower tidal volume than you ordinarily would has no downside. Sure, that makes sense to me. I, I just wonder, what, what's the, the study's prevent study? I imagine that they, they went up to nine cc's per kg and whatever, they lived a little, right? And I, I imagine that they're, I, I'm, I'm extrapolating without knowledge here, but I, I, I imagine they had some unilateral lung problems in that cohort and they didn't seem to have any. Prevent uh, was interesting, Alex. It was up to 10 and 
a lot of those patients were not primary respiratory failure. That's been one of the criticisms of that study is <clears throat> they were generally critically ill patients, but they weren't necessarily respiratory critical illness. And as a result, uh, I don't even know how many unilateral uh, horrible lungs there were, much less how many yeah, horrible lungs there were in general. Sure. That's a good point. I, I, I definitely see your point on that. And that, that makes sense to me. I, I agree with the positioning, obviously, because it's the right thing to do. But if I'm, I'm going to circle back quickly to the antibiotic choice here, I think it really important is the is I wouldn't change anything based upon our empiric uh, coverage, which included anaerobic stuff. And I don't know, I'm, I'm maybe overly cavalier, but I probably would have had a typical coverage is this for myosin just from the jump? I might have probably added it on here at, at this point, given how sick the person was, just because it's usually what I do for sick respiratory people. Yep, absolutely. So credit to Barrett. He did add azithro. And Barrett has, I think, an interesting antibiotic question. Go ahead, Barrett. Yeah, so I think we had a decent pretest probability for MRSA in this patient just based off the damage to the parenchyma of the lung, like we talked about before. And I was concerned about the time that it would take for Banco to really reach a kill in this patient. And I talked, we, we have NED pharmacy until about 11 or midnight. And so I went and talked with one of the pharmacists and I asked them if it would be worth it to add linezolid in order to get some faster action. And so after discussing with pharmacy, we did add linezolid to the equation as well. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I don't think it's, and you're implying by adding, you already given the Vanco, is that what it is? Yeah, they had already received, I believe they had already received the Vanco. Got it. Yeah, no, I think it's a great idea. There's arguments brewing now that should, on sick patients, we just replace Vanco with linezolid. And I think that eventually we'll see that might be the direction people are going just for the reasons you elucidated, which is it's easier to manage, it's easier to level, it's easier to get in. So yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I was reading it also has antitoxin properties, neutralizing properties. If you, if you have like a toxigenic process. Uh, yeah, I wasn't sure that was the one question that had come up in my mind when we were initially talking about vancomycin versus linazolid. And again, by the place that I work currently is a fully linazolid place is what you have to consider the penetration of the drug to the organ of interest. And so I wasn't sure, I'm still not sure whether or not uh, lung has a, a better penetration with vancomycin versus linazolid. Do you, do you guys happen to know? I don't well, know definitively that question. I do know linazolid's being spoken about for pneumonia specifically as to whether we should be using vanco or linazolid. So I think it, it penetrates better. The good Dr. Farkas recommends linazolid for severe cap. Then I won't argue with him. <laughs> Brian, the other question you had was about steroids. Yeah. I, I, if I can just address that quickly, I definitely I, quick. I think that- Hang is, on. Yo, sure. Fine, I'm going to tee on. you up for that. So the, the reason it's a question, I think, is because we don't have good guidelines. So the IDSA, for example, recommends against their use in severe cap, but like SCCM in the European Society of Critical Care Medicine recommend for it. And we have some mixed evidence- I'll say, I'll just note the ESCAPE trial in 2022 really didn't support uh, a difference in outcomes, but we do have some more recent evidence about steroids. So go ahead and give us your answer, Alex. It's just that. It, it's it, it, there's I, I, I'm fairly convinced by the, the New England Journal article that just came out for hydrocortisone and severe uh, community-acquired pneumonia that showed mortality benefit. I usually try and follow that evidence where I can, and far be it. And there, there are people far smarter than me that are able to parse it into smaller pieces, but I still go with evidence that's, that I think is fairly rigorous and that, you know, and their recommendations. So I would give the 100 
milligrams of hydrocortisone in this particular patient. And I wouldn't think twice about it, to be honest. So that it's, Alex, you're referring to the Cape Cod trial. An interesting thing about that trial is that there was even more benefit in the patients who had a significantly elevated CRP. Um, so I don't know how often you guys use that to get guide decision making, but I thought that was pretty interesting. And this patient's CRP was through the roof. Yeah, well, I could have told you this patient's CRP would have been through the roof without even sending it. All right. Where are we at, Bar Barrett? So you gave steroids, you gave azithro, you gave linazolid. He does look much better on high flow. Where are we at now? Uh, so at that point, we are actually almost seven hours into the case, and the patient is accepted to our respiratory intensive care unit, which is uh, essentially a step-down unit that's physically adjacent to the medical ICU. However, the patient continued to board in the emergency department for uh, several hours. It looks like about three or four hours after that. We ended up giving 20 milligrams of Decadron as steroid selection, which we can get into if we have time. But the patient actually ended up doing well on the high flow, maintained their SATs, maintained their work of breathing, and there was really a pretty uneventful rest of the stay in the emergency department. And why don't you just walk us through the highlights with being HIPAA conscious for the hospital course? Sure, yeah. On hospital day one, they actually had blood cultures that grew out an organism that is not a standard bacteria that causes pneumonia. And it actually raised concern for infectious disease that this could be an immunocompromised patient. So they sent a whole assay to look for that and dug back into the patient's history as well. They were given Piptazo and Vanco for the first four days of the hospitalization as well as azithro, it looks like. And then after that, they were placed on unison. A couple of days after that, they had a decompensation as the uh, lung disease continued to spread in the contralateral lung. Um, and they were actually taken to the OR for pneumonectomy. Um, at that time, they thought that the lung disease in the right lung was spillover from the infectious material in the left lung. Uh, they spent a few days in the ICU, and they were bumped down to a lower level of care. Unfortunately, they had to be taken back to the OR for a thoracotomy and left chest washout due to empyema. And then after a few more days in the hospital, they were discharged, and on follow-up, they are doing very well. And just an interesting thing about the history, once they dove into it, they looked at charts from other hospital systems he had some kind of severe pneumonias in the past too, when he was younger, which was a, I think in retrospect, a predictor of this event. For those listening, they did a very thorough infectious workup. He was TB negative, HIV negative, MRSA negative. They did a full fungal infection. So aspergillus, histolomus, uh, cryptococcal, all these things came back negative. That's just, I think, an interesting standpoint when something like this isn't fitting. You have to have a broad diagnostic workup that I certainly don't think is in the realm of emergency medicine right now, but who knows in the future. Super interesting. All right. Anything to wrap up, Ryan? No, I think we've hammered home some major points. Barrett, anything else you want to add? Major takeaways from a learning standpoint? 
No, I think we hit most of them. I think, Ryan, the other thing that you and I discussed is whether or not you treat for ARDS and whether or not you consider that in this patient. But I think that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah, I guess for from fluids, you're, is that what you're mentioning? Yeah, flu- exactly. Yeah, fluid restriction and all the other sort of conservative management there. What do you guys think? I think my fluids are the same, whether they're ARDS or not. It's, I think those two are not related. It, it, I guess if you're like a super profligate fluid giver and then you're like, oh, ARDS, I guess I'll pull back, then fine. Maybe your management changes. But if you're someone who's already going to give the right amount, but no more than that, then I don't think ARDS changes your management at all. Yeah, I agree. I think it's all based upon your ultrasound, how the, how the person looks how the left LV looks, how the IVC in, in addition to the LV looks. Um, RV also is super important here. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much. Fantastic work. Barrett, thank you so much for presenting, man, and getting this all together. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having for us. Your continued service. And Alex, thank you for joining us for the first time. For Oh, thanks for inviting me. So at the conclusion of this case, I realized like this is outside my wheelhouse a little bit. I'm a surgical intensive care guy. I know trauma and ED critical care, but palm crit, you know, that's not really my thing. So I got on the phone with brilliant intensivist May West, pulmonary critical care, friend to the show, super smart, super good. And uh, I ran the case by her. And so that will be the last 10 minutes of this episode. Let's get right into it. The chest x-ray is interesting because it looks like there's maybe a couple things going on. You can see clearly that there's air bronchogram um, of the left main airway, and you can see it's branching. You can see that there's, it looks like a cavity with an air fluid level. And the rest of the lung is affected as well. So it looks like there's pretty dense consolidation. And what looks like maybe a little patch of aerated lung at the base um, or stomach bubble, maybe hard to tell, but um, this looks like a pretty sick lung. I see a little bit of tracheal deviation at the distal portion of the trachea. Could be, looks like he's not, the patient's not really rotated, but there's a little bit of tracheal deviation, but not too much. See, and here we go. The CAT scan's open. Let me play this again. So, I'm going to take it from the top. So, I'm seeing an area that looks like that could be in the left upper lobe. That could be extra pulmonary. So, maybe something plural. That looks like that's that air fluid level. The then there's obviously an area of dense consolidation, and then within that dense consolidation, if I go down to right around where the pulmonary artery splits, it looks like there's some area of cavitation that continues down. And then lower lobe looks like dense pneumonia, and it appears that there is some pleural fluid at the base as well. So this is a pretty sick lung, and I think there's probably a couple things going on here. Yeah, the, the radiologist read coincided with yours nicely. He read it as a extraparenchymal abscess in communication with dense pneumonia, as you'd imagine. Yeah. And there is some tracheal shift, too, you can see here as well. Yeah, there's definitely some tracheal shift once you get into the chest. So, man, how'd this guy present? 
Yeah, so he's 30 years old, came in with a complaint of just cough and respiratory distress, said he had no medical history. It turned out in the course of, of testing, he had an immunocompromise unbeknownst to him. So this is how he presented. And the question was, because I don't want to belabor the general management, but what the hell do you do when you have a lung abscess in a sick guy like this? Yeah, I think this case is pretty... This is not textbook. I think most pulmonary abscesses or lung abscesses are a result of aspiration. That's a classic teaching that there's aspiration of some anaerobe. They're often polymicrobial infections. You often don't discover what the actual bug is via blood or or from sputum culture. And that's considered more of a primary lung abscess. And often most patients get better with uh, antibiotics, even just empiric antibiotics without having a targeted um, bug to, to go after. And that's often unison while they're sick in the hospital and, and switching over to Augmentin and keeping them on weeks of antibiotics until they have uh, radiographic resolution. This is a little different because one is the patient's immunocompromised. One of the teachings that I always like to say with immunocompromised patients is they can have more than one thing. So they can have more than one pulmonary infection. They can have more than one systemic infection when they're severely immunocompromised and with the bone marrow patients as well. This patient, I'd be more, as opposed to a run-of-the-mill aspiration, I'd be more interested in looking for a diagnosis and trying to figure out what bugs they have. In particular, patients that are immunocompromised are more susceptible to opportunistic infections. Gram-negatives more likely. Is there PCP? Is there a reactivation TB? Who knows? It could be just about anything, and it could be more than one thing. That being said, staph and strep are still the most common bugs in patients with HIV and advanced AIDS. I think initially trying to get a, a microbiologic uh, diagnosis would be important for this patient. All right. He wound up having staph, as you nicely elucidated. He did test negative for TB, and uh, there was no PCP. So now you have your microbial diagnosis, and he obviously was started on broad-spectrum antibiotics. He actually got, I believe, zosin and linazolid, and then I don't remember what his atypical coverage was. It was some macrolide. And he got steroids as well. So now, do you have to go after this abscess? I hear abscess as a surgical trained guy. I'm like, okay, I've got to get something in there, but I don't know if it's the same in the pulmonary world. And if you do go after it, which direction do you come from? Oh, great question. So a couple of things here is, in addition to an abscess, it looks like there's also a pleural collection. So depending on the size of that, it looks pretty small, but I'd probably be inclined to find a nice spot with ultrasound and see if I can, if there's any drainable collection there from the pleural um, cavity. Otherwise, the management of lung abscess is really antibiotics and seeing how they do. So put them on antibiotics for a couple of days. You may have fevers that persist for maybe a week longer, but you should start to see some improvement in symptoms, see improvement with the white count coming down. And if there's no improvement and there's a clear collection that can be drained, some recommend drainage of the collection. And this is not common at all. I've only seen it a couple times. And we often recommend expectant management with antibiotics. And if they don't improve to con consider drainage, the reason being is one, you don't want to seed the pleura. This, this patient looks like it's already whatever necrotic pneumonia, the staph can be necrotic, pyogenic, and probably 
essentially ate through the pleural lining and went into the pleura. The other was just that the pleural fusion is reactive. However, you don't want to seed that pleura. And then the other concern is forming a bronco pleural fistula where, you know, if one wasn't already created. So that's the biggest concern. And often these kind of improve just with long-term antibiotics. You'll see that there are some folks out there that would try and drain these bronchoscopically. I think that should be reserved for people that obviously have experience doing this. I have never seen it done, to be honest. And there's always a risk of with disturbing the abscess, having spillage and sort of those purulent contents spilling into the lung and causing an ARDS type reaction. And that's also one of the reasons why sputum is recommended first over invasive diagnostic procedures such as bronchoscopy. And when we do go in and do bronchoscopy, we like to wash around it and not actually go right after the abscess, which is the opposite of how we approach other uh, lung infiltrates, um, where you want to go to the radiographic infiltrate here, we're tiptoeing around the abscess so as not to disturb it. Again, in this patient, what I probably do is see if there was an area with the ultrasound or in discussion with in our group, if it's a really small, difficult to place tube, talking with CVIR to see if there's something that can be drained under fluoroscopy, and then starting with antibiotics um, and seeing how the patient does over the course of several days. And if they're getting better, great. And if not, think about doing something different. Absolutely. That makes complete sense. He was getting worse and wound up getting thoracic surgery consultation, and they wound up going in there and doing a VATS. When do you pull the trigger on that? Is it a patient who is now doing markedly worse? Is it the development of a bronchopleural fistula? What would make you pull the trigger on a surgical consultation? Yeah, I think if you're thinking about draining, I would get the surgeons involved at the same time. Especially in this case, the extent of damage to the lung, if they would go ahead and clear out the space, if they would resect any part of it, this is pretty extensive. But often, if it's contained to one segment of the lung or lobe of the lung, they can do a resection if the patient fails to get better. So as soon as I'm thinking about draining the abscess, this is obviously somebody that's not responding to antibiotics. I would certainly involve our our thoracic surgeons in the case to to review it and discuss it. Beautiful. So for a caveman intensivist like me, empyema, stick tube in, abscess, don't. And then let the smarter people figure out what needs to be done next. (laughs) Is that fair? Yeah, same for us. It's empyema, yes, drain, lung abscess, leave it alone for the moment exactly and see how they do. I think the overwhelming majority of patients do just fine with antibiotic therapy. And there's difference of opinions how long you should treat these. Some people say three or four weeks. There's a lot of antibiotic stewardship is a hot topic. Some people like to define the course. I don't. I'd rather have depending on how compliant the patient is, have them come in a week, make sure they're doing better, and then get just a plain x-ray in three or four weeks. As long as they're doing better, make sure that that collection's getting smaller, and then maybe continue antibiotic course until there's stability or resolution. And that can be different for different patients. Sometimes these, if they're smaller, they can completely resolve and you don't see anything. Sometimes there's a small cyst that remains, but certainly there's no clear-cut evidence to say that three weeks or four weeks is better than six weeks, and it really just depends on the clinical course. 
Brilliant. Mae West, I can't thank you enough. You always bring uh, brightness and elucidation to the show. So thank you again. Thanks, Scott. All right. Thanks to May. Thanks to all the shadow boxing participants. Thanks to you all for listening. And uh, if you're listening to this as a free member, what the hell is wrong with you? Um, you? You could be a paid member and never have to listen to annoying messages or anything like that again. And um, I guess that's all we got for this week. I put all the comments in the show notes for this episode. This has been Scott Weingart for the Shadow Boxing Crew saying bye-bye and happy birthday.